The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, well, take your Bibles with me this morning. Turn to Luke chapter 2. I appreciate all of you who have come out. Most of you knew I was preaching and you came anyway. That's pretty good. I like that. I want to talk to you this morning, preach to you a message entitled, Where is Jesus? A question that really needs to be asked in a lot of people's lives. Where is Jesus? But we're going to read this story from Luke chapter 2 and then we'll get into the message. So if you'll stand with me, please. Luke chapter 2, we'll begin in verse number 41. If you'll read silently as I read aloud. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. And when they had fulfilled the days, as they returned, the child Jesus tarried behind in Jerusalem. And Joseph and his mother knew not of it. But they, supposing him to have been in the company, went a day's journey, and they sought him among their kinsfolk and acquaintance. And when they found him not, they turned back again to Jerusalem, seeking him. And it came to pass that after three days they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the doctors, both hearing them and asking them questions. And all that heard him were astonished at his understanding and answers. And when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said unto him, Son, why hast thou thus dealt with us? Behold, thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And he said unto them, How is it that ye sought me? Wist ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time that we have. Thank you for uh, your people that have come out this morning to to hear the preaching of your word. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen me as I speak and that you would only help me to only say those things that would edify and, and would glorify God. Thank you for this time we have now. We ask you to bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever lost something? Misplaced it, maybe? Lost something? I remember one day I was, I was frantically running around my house looking for my glasses and couldn't find them anywhere. And finally, after about 25 minutes of this, I walked in the living room and told my wife, I cannot find my glasses. She looked at me and said, well, they're on your face. Right under my nose, and I lost them. My wife, when we were first married, she would lose keys. She went through about nine set of keys. And no matter what I did, she would lose her keys. So finally, one day, I bought her a key ring about this big. And she hated that thing. That was the last set of keys she ever lost. And then she learned how to keep better track of her keys. Well, this morning, I want to talk to us about misplacing Jesus. Where is Jesus in our lives this morning? 
Surprisingly enough, for many Christians, they'd have a hard time answering that question. And I want to talk to you about that this morning. What is the most frightening moment in a parent's life? Can anyone, anyone want to venture a guess? What would be the most frightening moment in the life of a parent? Losing your child. As a, as a parent, I can think of nothing that would be more devastating to me than, than misplacing my child and suddenly realizing that my child is missing. That never happened to my wife and I, fortunately. We, we didn't let them get far enough away from us to misplace them. But I can think of no more distressing moments. So can you imagine for a moment what Mary and Joseph must have felt like when after traveling a whole day, they turned around and said, where's Jesus? Where's our son? He's missing. And they began to look for him. They went to all their kinsfolk and said, is Jesus with you? No. Went to all of their friends. Is Jesus with you? No. And they turned back and went to Jerusalem and it took them three days to find Jesus. And when they finally did find him, his response to Mary was, why were you looking? Didn't you know I'd be right here? Didn't you know I'd be about my father's business? And you know, in our lives, when we misplace Jesus, when we suddenly come to that point when we realize we've, we've wandered away from him, that we, are, we have conducted our life in such a manner that he's no longer there, it's not a mystery to us where he is. And it's no mystery to us how to find him. The simple question is, will we do it? Now, there are many directions I could take this morning in expounding upon these scriptures. But I would like to, this morning, I would like to take this passage and make some practical applications to our lives concerning this matter. Applications concerning our own lives. Over the past three decades, I both experienced and observed similar incidents, as did Joseph and Mary in this situation. Incidents where we lose sight of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this begs the question, how can we possibly lose sight of the most important thing in our life? The most important thing to you and the most important thing to me, as, as was sung in the song just a few moments ago, is the Lord. So if something as valuable as the Lord, how can we possibly lose sight of it? Well, the list of answers would be quite long. Uh, however, for time's sake this morning, I'm going to focus on the three most common reasons why Christians lose sight of the Lord. So bear with me this morning as we go through these. Number one on your study sheets this morning, write the word complacency. Complacency. By this, I more directly am talking about familiarity. The definition of familiarity is knowledge gained through experience. Now, at first consideration, familiarity may seem to be harmless. In fact, it may seem to be helpful. However, when familiarity, while familiarity can help us to better understand spiritual things, it can also serve to obstruct them as well. 
When I was in the military and became a, a sergeant, an NCO, they sent me to a, they sent all of us to a training program, a seminar, uh, to help us transition to the role of a non-commissioned officer. And the first thing we were taught in that class is this. Perhaps some of you have heard this before. Familiarity breeds, anyone know the next word? Contempt. You see, they, they explained to us that as a sergeant, we were now in the position to give orders and to expect those orders to be obeyed. But if we become too familiar with those below us, if we become too familiar with them, they become complacent with us and they become contemptuous toward us and our authority is undermined and lost. Familiarity breeds contempt. And if you and I become too familiar with God and the things pertaining to him, we will begin to take them for granted. We will begin to treat them as commonplace. And the, the, this is why now today you hear people referring to the most reverend God and Father as the old man upstairs. Right? Makes my skin crawl every time I hear someone say that. How dare they have such irreverence for the Father? But that's because of familiarity. It's because of complacency. We've become so familiar with spiritual things. You know, there's a story in the Bible of a man who did just that. Turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 6. Let's all go together. 2 Samuel chapter 6. And we'll begin reading at verse number 3. 2 Samuel chapter 6, beginning at verse 3. And they set the ark of God upon a new cart, which they shouldn't have done. That's not the way to transport the ark of God. And brought it out of the house of Abinadab that was in Gibeah and Uzzah. Now, how would you like to have the name Uzzah, guys? And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drave the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was at Gibeah, accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played before the Lord on all manner of instruments made of fir wood, even on harps and on psalteries and on timbrels and on cornets and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put forth his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen shook it. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, And God smote him there for his error, and there he died by the ark of God. And David was displeased, because the Lord had made a breach upon Uzzah. And he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, I'm sure that Uzzah loved the Lord. I have no reason from scripture to, to believe that he was rebellious, that he was, that he was a person that, that uh, disdained the commandments of God, that he was disobedient to the commandments of God. We have no evidence of that in scripture. So I'm sure that he loved the Lord. And I'm sure that he probably loved the things of the Lord. 
But just perhaps, maybe perhaps he just became too familiar around the ark of God. Now, the ark of God, first of all, shouldn't have been in anyone's house. Definitely shouldn't have been there. It shouldn't have been accessible to anyone other than the high priest while he is attired in the proper garments at the right time of the season. No one else should have had immediate access to this. And it certainly was not to be transported on a cart pulled by oxen. So there's a lot of factors here where it's evident to me that a lot of people just became too familiar with the ark of God. And I'm, I'm certain that Uzzah meant to do a good thing. When he saw it shaking, he didn't want it to fall off the cart. He reached out and touched it. And, and maybe we could make an argument for the fact that the Lord was just a little stern on Uzzah. But the fact of the matter is, he had no business touching that ark, did he? Matter of fact, that ark had no business being where it was. And by rights, God could have, he could have smote everyone there and killed everyone for disobeying his commands. Uzzah just became a little too familiar with spiritual things. And sometimes so do we. Sometimes we just become a little too familiar with God. We become a little too familiar with God's house and all these things. Now, let me share some thoughts with you. When we become too familiar with spiritual things, first, it diminishes our respect. It diminishes our respect. The respect that we have for God. The respect that we have for his house. The respect that we have for the preacher. The respect that we have for the Bible. When we become too familiar, when, when we become too complacent with all of these things, it begins to diminish our respect for these things. And this is seen many ways. This is seen in our society today by the way we dress. The way we present ourselves to the Lord. I mean, I don't think a person, and I'm not trying to raise dress standards here, but I don't think a person should come to the house of God to worship him. I don't think we should come dressed like we're about to go to the beach. I don't think we should present ourselves in the house of God to praise and worship him. Like we just came walking out of the the grocery store or, or something such as that. Again, I'm not trying to live dress standards. I'm just simply saying, show some respect. You know, one of the things I hate the most is our, our United States presidents walk around dressed casually. I never did like that. I didn't like it one bit when it started. I don't like it now. Have some dignity. Have some respect for the office you hold. So when you come to church, have some respect. Listen, if you don't respect anyone else, at least respect God the Father. At least come dressed appropriately. At least come. And, and listen, again, I'm not trying to promote anything, but this simply shows to me your heart. It shows me that you don't have enough respect for God to present yourself before him 
in, in a righteous manner. It's seen in the way we do. It's seen in the way we behave. Our, our familiarity with the Lord is seen in the way we behave. And, and I'm not talking about the way we behave in, in church. Where we're seen. I'm talking about the way we behave privately. I'm talking about the way we, we, the things we do and the things we say. Aren't we aware of the fact that God is ever watchful of us, that he hears every word we say, that he sees everything we do? We act as though God can't see us outside of this building. And our reverence for him is seen in the way we behave. It's seen, it's seen in our fellowship with him. In our prayer life, how often do we pray? How consistent are we in prayer? How fervent are we in prayer? It's seen in our fellowship with one another. How we love the people of God. How we treat the brethren of God. These things are evidence of, of, of our of our familiarity, of, of our respect and our reverence. And, and familiarity diminishes our respect. We lose our respect for all these things. Because they become too familiar to us. We take them for granted. They become commonplace. And we're complacent in our, in our handling of these things. These are outward manifestations of our inward attitudes. They reveal our true respect for God. If we respect God, then let's behave like we do. Amen? If you love God and if you respect him, then behave like you do. Becoming too familiar with spiritual things, secondly, demeans our reverence. It demeans our reverence. By this, I mean that familiarity will degrade the amount of reverence we have. For God. Again, this is seen in our society today in so many ways. It will weaken our reverence. It will cause us to lose our zeal and will cause us to lose the urgency in our Christian walk. See, when, when familiarity demeans our reverence, then church attendance is, becomes less important. If we have something else to do, then we lay church aside because we have no more, because we, we don't reverence it as much as we should. Sunday is the Lord's day. From the moment the sun rises in the sky until it sets, it's God's day. Belongs to Him. It's not ours to do with as we see fit. It's the Lord's. And we allow so many things to, to interfere with that. I could say so much here, but I think the Holy Spirit says, all right, that's enough. Shut up. Church attendance will become less apart. Holiness will give place to indulgence. When familiarity demeans our reverence, holiness gives place to indulgence. I mean, we know what's right and wrong, but we just don't care. We just don't care. We know it's not right to use profane words, but we indulge ourselves by by posting them on a bulletin board on Facebook or by, by texting or tweeting them out there for everybody in the world to see. We don't, we don't care. We're going to indulge our senses whether it's right or not. 
And that comes from having no reverence for God, having your reverence demeaned by being too familiar, by not having the proper respect for God. Holiness gives place to indulgence. Purity in mind and speech becomes archaic. You know, I'm convinced most people speak the way they do without even realizing really they're doing it. Because it's just become so commonplace today. We, we know about, you know, the Bible says not to take the Lord's name in vain. And, and, and we know that we know that, that that's not talking primarily about cursing. That's talking about evoking God's name foolishly. And so often at, at my workplace, I hear people say, and forgive me, Lord, I hear people say, oh, my God. You realize that, that that's not a good thing to do. When you evoke the name of God, you better, have, you better be reverent about it. And it better have purpose. And it better be according to his purpose and his will. But you see, our reverence has been, has been degraded. And all of this will cause us to lose sight of Jesus in our daily life. And if that weren't bad enough, it will also hide him from our children. From your children. And from our grandchildren, those of us in this room who are grandparents. What does Deuteronomy tell us? Deuteronomy chapter 6 tells us this. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house, and on thy gates. This is why we have a generation today that has no reverence for God or the things of God. It's because we have lost sight of who and what Jesus is. In Judges chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, we read, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being an hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Herez, in the mountain of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. Did you see that? There arose a generation that knew not the Lord. And folks, can I tell you that right now in America, we have a generation that knows not the Lord. And whose fault is it? It's the fault of me and you. And it's the fault of all of those that fail to teach our children the truth of God, and to instill in them the proper reverence for God and for spiritual things. So familiarity diminishes our respect. It demeans our reverence. Then, thirdly, it divests our responsibility. It strips away from us. Familiarity will strip away from us the responsibility that we have to walk worthy of our Lord. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 12 and verse 13, we read, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You can throw out every book ever written by men in their vain attempts to instruct us in the meaning of life. You can forget everything the psychologist says about human nature and the psyche of man. Solomon, the wisest man ever born, sums it all up for us in this one concise verse of scripture. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. However, if we lose our respect and our reverence for God, then we will certainly fail in this responsibility, which has been so clearly defined for us. It was these things that led Uzzah to reach out and touch the ark. He lacked the proper respect for the ark and what it represented. He lacked the reverence which would have prevented him from taking such presumptive action. And all of this caused him to fail in his responsibility. So familiarity can cause us to lose sight of Jesus. Complacency. But then we must also consider, secondly, write down the word confusion. Confusion will cause us to lose sight of the Lord. Now, the definition of confusion is a lack of clearness or distinctness. Now, I'm not trying to say here that either Mary or Joseph was confused as to where Jesus should have been. They knew that he should have been with them. But what we see is a lack of clearness on their part. As to where he was and what he was doing. Turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Let's go to Luke chapter 10. We're going to look at a very familiar story in the scriptures. Luke chapter 10. And let's go to verse number 38. Begin reading at verse 38. We read, now it came to pass as they went. That he entered into a certain village and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her, therefore, that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things. But one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. There are some key thoughts here for us to remember as I I observe this story. First is this. Being busy is not necessarily beneficial. We see an interesting contrast in this story. Martha is so busy. She is working, as it's proverbially said, she's working her fingers to the bone. But Mary isn't doing anything to help her. I can almost see Martha now peeking out the doorway at Mary. Can you see her? She's in the kitchen and she's, she's busy preparing food for Jesus and, and, the, and the, his disciples. And she goes back to work does more things, sets the table, and 
make sure the place settings are just right and the napkins are folded into pretty little swans. Mary, just sitting out there doing nothing while I'm doing all this work. But, you know, I find Jesus' response. When she came to Jesus and complained about Mary, I find Jesus' response interesting. He said, but one thing is needful. Now, I believe in, I believe in being busy. Uh, and there's a time for being busy. But there was something missing in Martha's life. That's why Jesus said, Martha, one thing is needful. There's something needful in your life, Martha. Sometimes we need to just step away from the busyness and just sit at the feet of Jesus. Listening to and feeding upon his words. Job knew this in Job chapter 23, verse 11 and 12. He says, my foot hath held his steps. His way have I kept and not declined. Neither have I gone back from the commandment of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Job said the most important thing for me is the word of God. Far too many believers today are confused over this matter. They suppose that being busy is the primary thing. Yet they neglect the most important thing. Taking time to be holy. I've seen this happen so many times to people over the years. I I remember when I... When I moved here, I became the bus director here. We, had, we, we used to run Sunday school buses. And one of, the, one of the men that ran one of our buses was having some problems at home, and he came to talk to me about it. And, and I told him, I said, you know, being busy in the bus ministry is a good thing. I mean, it took hours and hours and hours of work to make those buses successful. But I told him, you know, your personal devotion time, And the time you spend with your family are very important also. And you have to have a balance in your life. Don't don't withhold your time in in service. Most definitely don't. All of us need to be busy. We We need to serve the Lord. But we can't sacrifice our, our, our time in the word of God. We can't sacrifice our devotion. We can't sacrifice our fellowship with Christ. One for the other. And this is what he is teaching Martha here. Maybe this morning we've lost sight of Jesus because we're just too busy. We're too busy to sit at his feet and to, and to worship him. The second, the second thought is this. Let me just say work is not always worship. Work is not always worship. Now, I'm sure that Martha desired to worship Jesus as much as Mary did. And it's very likely that Martha was confused about true worship. Perhaps she thought the best way to worship Jesus was just to serve him. This, too, I've observed for many years. I've seen men and women work their hearts out. But what about prayer? What about meditation? What about fellowship? These things are important. God wants you to work today, absolutely. But he wants you to have a balance in your life, putting the most important things first. Notice in verse 42, Jesus' response to Martha's complaint about Mary's idleness. He says, but one thing is needful, and Mary hath chosen that good part, 
which shall not be taken away from her. Jesus said, Mary has chosen to sit at my feet. She's chosen to, to, to hear my words. She's chosen to glean wisdom from me. And that is important. She's chosen to do the good part. Yes, Martha, we need the work. Yes, you need to serve. But you need to, you need to fellowship with Christ. You need to sit at his feet. Mary chose to put her worship of Christ ahead of the work. And as I stated earlier, there is a time for work, but it never takes priority over the time to worship. But we also need to remember, thirdly, that sacrifice does not equate to submission. There are so many believers today that taunt their accomplishments as the evidence of their godliness. But remember what Paul said. Let's, let's look at 1 Timothy chapter 6. Let's all go together. 1 Timothy chapter 6. And remember here the words of Paul. 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning at verse 1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be, be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself." I can think of no better illustration of this matter of service not equating to submission than King Saul. And I don't have time to elaborate on the subject, but we know the story of King Saul, how he disobeyed God and made the sacrifice out of impatience, waiting for Samuel. And what was Samuel's response? In 1 Samuel 15, 22, Samuel said, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of rams. Sacrifice does not equate to submission. It is so important today that we clearly understand these things. Confusion is a tool of the devil. If he can keep you confused in your priorities, then he can cause you to lose sight of exactly who and what Jesus is. What causes us to lose sight of Jesus? Complacency. Confusion, and then thirdly this morning, compromise. Compromise. Now, compromise is defined simply as a dishonorable or shameful concession. Now, in no way am I insinuating that Joseph and Mary were compromising concerning the incident in Luke chapter 2. But if I'm going to discuss the factors which contribute to our losing sight of Jesus Christ, I would be deeply remiss if I left this one out. After all, I can think of few things that a Christian can do to hurt himself, his church, or being a reproach upon his Savior more than compromise. God's word has much to say about this. In Romans chapter 12, we read, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. 
First John chapter two and verse 15, John states, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the father is not in him. James chapter four and verse four, we read, ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Yet, armed with this knowledge, many of God's people still compromise their Christian life. Now, what does compromise do to us? Let me share some thoughts with you quickly and we'll be done. First, compromise corrupts our testimony. It corrupts our testimony. We read earlier in our Sunday school hour from Galatians chapter 5. This I say then, walk in the spirit and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. When we live a life of compromise, we lose the blessings of God. You know, people say God's going to punish you. Folks, God doesn't punish his children. Our punishment was made by Jesus on the cross. God doesn't punish it. Get that idea out of your head. But what he will do is withhold blessings. You don't get that flat tire on your way to work because you, God's punishing you. You get that flat tire on the way to work because God lifted his hand of, of blessing off of you, perhaps. So let's get that mentality straight in our minds, okay? God doesn't punish his children. His anger and wrath was taken out of, on us but on the cross with Jesus Christ. But he will, he will withhold blessings from you. And we can lose our blessings. James chapter 4 and verses 2 and 3. Ye lust and have not, ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not, because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. And compromise will rob from us the blessings of God. We fail, when we compromise, we fail in our witness of Christ. When we live a compromising life, we we have no authority in our witness. Acts chapter 19 and verse 15. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are ye? And when we fail to, when we fail to, to reverence God in our lives and when we compromise our lives, we have no witness. We lose our witness for Christ. Um, compromise will bring a reproach upon the name of Christ. Second Samuel chapter one and verse 20, upon the, the, upon the death of Saul and Jonathan, David said, tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ascalon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised triumph. David said, don't, don't, don't talk about it. Don't talk about it because all it'll do is give, give, give joy to the enemies of God. And when we compromise, When we live a compromising life, it brings a reproach upon the name of Christ. Just as a disciplined Christian life will bring honor and glory to the Father, a compromised Christian life will bring shame to his name in the eyes of unbelievers. Compromise corrupts our testimony, but then, B, it consumes our talents. God has given talents or gifts to all of us, each man according to the purpose of God. To fulfill the work of the ministry in his local church. Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 
Now, there are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there are differences of administrations, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of operations, but it is the same God which worketh all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to every man to profit withal. God has given each of us abilities, gifts, talents to use in his work. When we live our life as a disciplined follower of Christ, these gifts serve to benefit the entire body of Christ. However, when we live a compromised life, these gifts are consumed upon our flesh and do not benefit the body of believers. This is true in the case of Elvis Presley. How many of you knew that Elvis Presley was a Sunday school teacher? How many of you knew that he was a choir director? And God gave him these talents, and what did he do with them? He became the king of rock and roll and glorified himself. I spoke to a preacher once that said he was in an elevator with Elvis Presley and witnessed to him. And Elvis, Elvis said, I'm a child of God. I'm just falling away from the Lord. If that's true, I don't know if it is or not. I'm not advocating Elvis Presley. But if it's true, he took what God gave him to use for his glory and consumed it upon his own lust. Are we guilty of that? That's what compromise will do. When you compromise your life, it consumes your talents. So think for a moment. What gift has God given you? Can you sing? Join the choir. Do you have a green thumb? Then work in the landscaping ministry. Can you teach? Talk to Brother Gerald and become a Sunday school teacher. Maybe you can't do any of these. Maybe you'd say, well, I just, I just can't do it. Can you be faithful? Can you come to church and sit in the pew and, and, and worship God? We all have a purpose. Every one of us in this room has been given a purpose by God. Maybe, maybe your purpose is to sit there so that Pastor Smith looks at you every Sunday and you smile and you say amen and you encourage him. By the way, saying amen to a preacher is like saying sick him to a dog. He just gets excited and gears up and gets, gets deeper. The most important thing is not what gift do you have. The most important thing is what are you doing with the gift that God has given you. And then, lastly, compromise claims our time. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 16, we see, See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Now let me try to explain to you what what Paul is saying here. What he means by redeeming the time is that he means we're going to trade every moment that God has given us for something. Every moment of life God has given you, you trade for something. My mom used to conduct, used to collect re, um, those old redeeming stamps. Some of you may remember those old stamps you'd get at the grocery store. And I used to lick them for her and stick them in the book. And she would go down to the redemption store and she would trade those stamps and she would get something for it. That's exactly what happens with your time. You trade your time. When you, when you kneel and pray, you're trading that time for prayer. When you, when you read your Bible, when you study the word of God, you're trading your time for that. You're, you're redeeming the time that God has given you and you're doing it for good things. But, oh, wait a minute. When we redeem our time for, for, for the wrong things, God holds us accountable for that as well. And a compromising life claims your time. 
So then every moment of life God has given you is exchanged for something. And compromise will cause us to spend our time in exchange for sin, in exchange for selfishness, and in exchange for serving the, the, the will of Satan. That's what compromise will do. It will claim your time for its own agenda and not for the purposes of God. So where's Jesus today in our lives? Is he on the throne? Does he control every aspect of our life? Or do we live a complacent life, failing to appreciate all the spiritual things that God has given us? Are we living uh, in spiritual confusion, a life with misplaced priorities? Maybe not doing bad things, but not doing the best things. Are we living a compromising Christian life? Loving this world and loving the allurements of this world so much that we don't care about what Christ says. You know, folks, I know that we would all like to think we're really, we're really good. But Jesus said there's none good save God. And we, we may all learn to behave in a certain way, but in our hearts, God doesn't look at what we do on the outside. He looks in here. God pondereth the heart. Where is Jesus in our heart today? You know, before I stood up to preach this message to you, I preached it to myself. And I had to look in myself this week, and I had to, I had to ask myself these same questions. The best thing we can do this morning is to just admit our faults to the Lord. Jesus told his parents, why did you have to go looking for me? Didn't you know where I would be? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? But, you know, sadly, that last verse we read says they understood not his saying. They understood not his saying. This morning, do you understand What God is saying to us, where's Jesus in your life? He should be filling it. You have children this morning? You fathers in this room? Your main emphasis in life should be to make sure that that child knows the Lord Jesus Christ. That he knows of God's glory. That he knows of God's greatness. That he will come to a knowledge of Jesus and be saved. You fathers, that's your greatest responsibility today. Not, not, a, not your career. Bag groceries at, at, at Safeway if you have to. But teach your children the word of God. You mothers in this room. Be a living example in the lives of your, of your husband and your children. Be a living example of the Holy Spirit's love and the Holy Spirit's care for us. Let's live our life to the glory of the Father. Jesus is right where he ought to be. That's not the question. Really, the question isn't where is Jesus? The question is where are you? Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. And Lord, I know that we like to hear good things and we like to hear things that make us feel better. 
But the truth of the matter is, we live in a society today that is so full of compromise that if we're not careful, we end up right in the middle of it. Help each of us today to examine our hearts and to, to truthfully take care of the things in our life that need to be dealt with. Help us, Lord, to have the right respect, the right reverence, fulfill our responsibilities. Help us to have the right priorities, to do the right things. Father, we need your help. We can't do it without you. So we ask you to bless us today. Bless the preaching of your word. Use it to your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.